Thanks, Charlie. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. Um, and I just want to say welcome one more time to our final Sunday at the Miramar Theater. Um, we will be um, doing some celebration later in the service, um, but this is a place that I love and hold dear. And so I just treasure spending um, one more Sunday looking out um, and sharing this moment with all of you. We're in the middle of our Sunday School Horror Stories uh, series where we are re-examining some of the stories that we like to tell to children. Um, many, of whom, many of these stories are from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, um, and are very complicated, sometimes very scary, and often really troublingly interpreted. Today, the story that we're talking about is Esther. This one might be a little bit of a deeper cut. It tends to go uh, in Sunday school programs that really want to have good stories for girls to hear, where girls are the heroes of the stories. Has anybody heard the story Esther or have some passing familiarity? Okay, so a handful, a good, a good chunk even. Esther is a complicated story like every other story in our tradition. Esther is not a cut and dry, easy, hey, Here's a problem, here's a hero, we all win, go Jesus. Though we would love to have it be that way, and sometimes we pretend that the stories are like that. This one's a particularly confusing one to tell to, to children, because um, as is the case with a lot of the stories that get told to children, the reason that Esther is told to kids is because Esther is a girl, a young girl, when she uh, enters this story. But she's also a young girl basically recruited to be the bride of a king when she is still a child. And she's also a, a, Jewish, a Jewish girl um, in the diaspora, which means in the kind of sent out, um, kind of spread out uh, of her people that they've been displaced. So she and her people have been displaced. She's an orphan. Her parents have died. She's being raised by Mordecai, who is sometimes called her cousin and sometimes called her uncle. You know, the family members that raise us, that care for us when we need them. And so Esther is in trouble. Esther has a lot going on. And she's entering into this world of power. And the whole story unfolds around how she handles that power and what that means for her people. Esther is called a historical novella. We talked a little bit last time about genre. We were in apocalyptic literature before, these like big scary images and these grand pronouncements about the end of the world and the ends of things. This one is called historical novella because it's like what we would normally call historical fiction. This is not a story that's interpreted to be um, accurate to history, which doesn't make it not true. It tells a truth set in a historical reality that the people who were telling it knew and knew too well. The conquering of the Jewish people by many different empires meant that the Jewish people were spread all across the land, and in this case, they're in Persia. So this story is set in Persia under King Xerxes, and it's a story with violence. It's a story about retribution and justice. It's a story of great reversals where God's people are being crushed and then that changes. But it changes in an exact reversal, which is to say, in the end, they're the ones doing the crushing. 
It's a complicated story. It's a story about assimilation and identity. It's a story about coming of age, finding one's own power and voice. It's a story about claiming authority, and over the course of generations, it became a story about the festival Purim, which celebrates um, the victory of the Jewish people. So I just want to tell you this story, and I want you to dwell in it with me. And I want you to trust that the truth of God emerges through it, through the telling and hearing and sharing. So this story begins with a banquet. The king, King Xerxes, seems to really like parties. Like, he is a party boy. And with, <laughs> with these kinds of empires, sometimes that would happen. Like, Xerxes doesn't seem like the guy who actually, like, made it all happen. He seemed to be, like, born into it happening and being like, where's the champagne? So he throws a lot of banquets. There are, like, dozens of banquets in this one book of the Bible alone, all thrown, almost all thrown by King Xerxes. Esther gets in on a couple. But he's throwing, in the beginning of this book, a lavish banquet, an excessive banquet. The first banquet in the book, it says, goes on for 180 days, which is bizarre. It's one of the first clues we have um, to the fact that this is not intended to be taken literally. But what it means is that King Xerxes doesn't really have good judgment. (laughs) And he really likes to hang, but he doesn't really like to rule effectively. He surrounds himself with um, consultants and sages and advisors. And so he, he lavishes on them. He, these are really his party buddies, but they're also the ones ultimately running the show. So he's having this wild banquet. After his 180-day banquet, he throws another one right away for seven days. So he's throwing this seven-day banquet, and it is a demonstration of both his power and wealth, but also his utter lack of restraint. In fact, it says, drinking was by flagons without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each one desired. And so there is this kind of sense of excess and no boundaries and unwillingness uh, to contain oneself, but to actually just do whatever they wanted. And that wasn't just the king, it was the culture he had created. Now they tell us that the queen, Vashti, was also throwing a banquet. And they set up this sort of sex-segregated party zone where the dudes that are running this country, this empire, are all just getting very, very drunk in one area, and the women are elsewhere. Now, when the king was, quote, merry with wine, a.k.a. wasted, He calls for Queen Vashti and he says, she's beautiful, I want her to come before my court and show all of these drunken men who I've told not to restrain themselves and do whatever they want. I want her to come parading through my banquet wearing her crown, which all the commentaries say is code for wearing only her crown. And so the king, this party boy, wants to show off the woman he has claimed as queen. And who knows what kind of dangerous environment she's coming into. In our culture now, there is a big conversation about what it means to not be able to say no to something like that. What the stakes are when someone does say no. And we see that play out here. Vashti says, no, I'm not going to do that, and refuses to come. 
Well, the king is enraged, and he consults these sages, these, this uh, entourage that he has, that he's been pouring wine into and throwing banquets for, and they say, not only has this queen done wrong to you, king, but to all the officials and all the people, because if women hear across Persia what the queen has done, then all of them will look with contempt on their husbands. The noble ladies, they say, will rebel. And so right away you see this this fear, this uh, desire for control, these men saying we can't have it be known that women can defy the rule of their husbands and therefore we have to really crack down in this particular case. And so the queen is deposed. She's stripped of her title. She's no longer ever to be um, in the sight of King Xerxes anymore. And and they, then they kind of double down on this throughout the kingdom. They send letters and decrees across all of Persia to all the provinces saying, every man should be master of his own house. As he's deposing the queen, Xerxes says, I'm going to get someone better. Enter Esther, <laughs> this young girl We kind of cut from this scene, this royal scene, this royal fight playing out in a way that powerful men are just exerting themselves left and right and pressing women into bad corners and declaring their right to do so. And we cut to this young girl, this Jewish girl who's living in the diaspora as a refugee, strewn with her people throughout the land, her parents gone, raised by uncle or cousin, family Mordecai, who has taken her in. Mordecai has a Babylonian name, and so we know that he has already done what he had to do to sort of assimilate and be safe. But she at this time is actually going by Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name. But she's young and she's beautiful, and so when the king makes as part of his decree that he wants all of the most beautiful young women to be gathered in from the land and brought into a harem, Hadassah is recruited into this. And Mordecai says to her, don't be Jewish. (laughs) Like, put a wrap on that. Your name is Esther. Don't tell anyone who you are. And so Esther is young and obedient and beautiful, and so she gets recruited into this harem and she obeys, and she says, okay, I'm, I'm Persian, it's fine. Um, Esther means star. Um, she gets praise as soon as she gets into the harem and she starts to um, sort of go up the ranks. I sort of imagine like a very weird reality show because he, she's essentially recruited to go to beauty camp They've recruited all of these women, all of these young girls, um, to live in a harem for a year, a year, six months to be, um, six months of oil with myrrh, six months of perfume and cosmetics, the Bible says, 12 months of training to be beautiful and pleasing for the king. And Esther starts to ascend the ranks and starts to be pleasing to the, the kind of middle management that's watching over this. Now part of this, in addition to changing her name, being beautiful, being obedient, being charming, she also completely assimilates. The text says that she is um, given the best food. And it doesn't say that she denies it, so we assume she's eating it. 
Now, for those of you who were here last time, you know that part of the issue with Jews under occupation is that, generally speaking, to eat the food and to follow the food customs of the ruling people would be a violation of Jewish identity. That's one of the reasons that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got in trouble in the first place last time we met. But Esther here doesn't seem to be bothered with it. She goes right along with it. She denies her Jewish customs. She eats the food. She becomes even more beautiful. And a year later, she and the other girls are paraded before King Xerxes, who, true to his character so far, points at the most beautiful one he sees and says, I want. And so now Esther is queen. Esther has has gone up in the ranks very quickly in her short life. Now she's the queen of Persia. But she knows how tenuous a position this is because she knows how she got it and how defying the king uh, played out for the last queen. So she's very tentative, continues to be obedient and pleasing, to assimilate, to follow the rules she's been given, and to hide her Jewishness. During this time, Mordecai overhears two people plotting to kill the king. And so he tells Esther. And Esther tells the king. And she tells him with Mordecai's name. She says, Mordecai told me this. Which not only saves the king's life, but immediately puts Mordecai in the king's favor. So Esther and Mordecai are coming up in the world, or at least in the Persian world and in the Persian court. Enter Haman. This is where, if I had background music, you would hear the dun-dun-dun, because Haman is the villain of this story. Haman immediately does not like Mordecai. Mordecai has points with the king for saving his life, but Haman is craftier than some of the other counselors. Haman sees the king for the party boy that he is and knows that he can be manipulated knows that if Haman just plays his cards right, he can really functionally rule Persia in the name of this king who is bumbling and drunk all the time. And so Haman first accumulates his power and orders by way of the king, gets the king to approve this, that everyone should bow down to him and do everything he says. Now that's a violation of Mordecai's sense of self and sense of faith that he's not willing to give up. And so Mordecai doesn't bow. Well, that doesn't go over well with Haman either. Haman finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. And Haman is such a bad guy and so pissed and so egomaniacal that he says, it is not enough for me to kill you. I must kill all your people. Now, the Jewish people didn't have a great situation in Persia to begin with. And so Haman went to the king, and he said, King, there's a whole group of people out here. They're spread out through the land. They're not really of us. They're not like us, and we need to get rid of them. Do I have your permission to do this? It's real vague. It's real shady. And the king says, yes. You know what? While you're at it here, just take my signet ring, the way things worked at the time, 
was that any decree that had like a seal with the king's signet ring impression in it, that was considered law. And so the king hands over full authority to Haman saying, do what you like. When it came to getting permission to killing all the Jewish people in the land, Haman threw in a little bonus, which is, if you let me do this, when we do this, I will pay you an enormous sum of money. And so Xerxes is like, great, more banquets for me. Take my ring, do what you want. So, and this sum of money, again, in, in like modern U.S. dollars would be the equivalent of like millions, millions, hundreds of millions. So the king is like, whatever, man, I trust your judgment. You do what you got to do. And they cast lots and they set a date for the end of the Jewish people of Persia. Well, this word gets out because it becomes a decree and Jewish folks everywhere are panicking. Mordecai in particular is devastated. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes and distraught. Esther reaches out to him, tries to get him to wear his normal clothing to calm down. But Mordecai's like, we're toast. They're going to kill us. They're going to kill all of us. Esther, you have to do something. You have to get in there. You have to go talk to the king. And Esther's like, are you, are you kidding? Have you not been paying attention to this story so far? She reminds him that everyone knows the law. If any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. There is this exception where if the king holds out his golden scepter, they're supposed to be spared. But that's obviously the exception to the rule. She says, I haven't been called on for 30 days. And Mordecai says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. And who knows, perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Esther has a lot to think about and a lot to consider. When we think about what's at stake for Esther, not only is it her well-being and her survival, but it's also her framework for surviving. How has she made it this far when her parents have died and her people have been displaced? She has survived by doing what is easy for everyone else. She has survived by acquiescing and being polite. She has survived by being pretty and pleasing and not bucking the system. And everyone around her has told her to do that every second of her life, to accommodate others, to people please, to assimilate to just let things go, to hide herself, her Jewish identity. She has so many vulnerabilities in a world that is ruled by careless men. She is a young girl. And yet now she has this tiny piece of power, of safety, of security. She's the queen of Persia. But she knows how tenuous that is. What could happen if she loses that position? What could be happening to her if she gets found out? Will she be slaughtered with everyone else? 
But Mordecai is reminding her of the promise of God to the people of God, which is, I will deliver you. I have delivered you. As we sang this morning, God has already won. God has already won. But how do we hold that promise in diaspora? How do we hold that promise as an orphan? How do we hold the promise of God's deliverance when we are suffering or insecure or oppressed? when we aren't sure what it would take to make it to another day. This is not a promise that everything will work out okay for Esther. It's not a promise that Esther will survive. It's not a promise that deliverance will come in her lifetime. This is a promise that one day all things will be made right. And right now, Esther has an invitation to participate in making that promise come true. Mordecai is reminding her that God's plan is at work even if we are so close into it that it feels like it has slowed to a crawl or is moving backwards. That God is doing something. That God has always been doing something. That the fullness of God's story is coming into being and that fullness is life and love and reconciliation and joy and freedom. And that our current captivity is a moment in that story but it is not the end. And then Mordecai is challenging her and saying, how do you know your part in this story wasn't written for this very moment? You have been going along. You have been being safe. You have been accepting your fate. And perhaps that was so that in this moment you could throw it all down. You could step into your freedom. You could put everything on the line for your people, and you could be a part of that story God is writing. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be okay. But it means that one day everything will be right. And it's the choice of whether to sit it out and play it safe, which might still get you killed, or to get into the game, get into the fray, risk everything, put it on the line, and trust that the resources you have right now are so that you can be a part of the salvation of the whole world of all of your people. Esther has a big decision to make. And her hiding has come at a cost. Even if she plays along, even if she watches her people die, how long before she's found out? How long before she defies the king and meets the same fate as Vashti or others? who are killed just for requesting an audience. Mordecai is right. Someday she will be found out too. And living in fear will not keep her safe. But God has promised to save God's people. Mordecai trusts this and values it even beyond his own life and his own lifetime. And Esther can be a part of it if she wants. For such a time as this, What if all the resources Esther now has at her disposal, no matter how tenuous they feel, what if this position she has in the court, what if her place as temporary queen of Persia, unlikely queen of Persia, hiding Jewish queen of Persia, what if all of this has fallen into place in order that she might set her people free? She can make a difference here, but it's not without risk. She says in the text, if I perish, I perish. 
each of us has intersecting experiences of power and oppression. Pieces of ourselves that we hide and minimize and suffer for, and ways that we have benefited or protected ourselves by going along with systems of injustice. We often think that those people who are out in the streets, those people who are doing the most radical things, sort of showed up to life that way. But we're all on this journey, and it's something that I've struggled with a lot. I was raging the other day, rudely, <laughs> as I occasionally do, about my frustration with some of my queer colleagues who are choosing to remain closeted during a time when the United Methodist Church is orchestrating persecution against us. And I was so frustrated that people weren't putting themselves out there. I was so frustrated that people weren't coming along to, to fight for us, to advocate for us. When my colleague that I was raging to said, yeah, but didn't I see you once at DCOM in a dress? Context for this, in order to have this job, in order to work for Zhao, because Zhao was started as a United Methodist ministry, I have to go every year before something scary called DCOM, the District Committee on Ordained Ministry, and they get to decide every year whether I'm qualified to be a pastor. Now, my being queer and my being trans are in flagrant violation of our Book of Discipline, which I'm supposed to uphold in order to get that credentialing. And there are a lot of people working very hard to make sure that I don't get credentialed or that I don't stay credentialed so that I can't be here on Sundays anymore preaching to you, so that I can't get up here and say, hi, my name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm a pastor here. And I have been very out and loud lately, but my first DCOM, I was scared. You see, I had a mentor who had been working with me, who had written a letter to my DCOM recommending me for this licensing, this credentialing, and she had used my correct pronoun, they, them, theirs. And as much as I had been out publicly in, like, on the ground doing ministry, DCOM is of like rural <laughs> Wisconsinites who come from all over the place who aren't usually super hip to Facebook. And so they wouldn't have had any idea except that they were holding in their hands this letter that had my pronouns, they, them, theirs. And I thought, oh my gosh. I failed to protect myself. I'm not doing a good job of hiding. What happens when they know? And so I wore a dress that day and makeup and heels. Now I look bomb in a dress and makeup and heels. So I'm not about to apologize for that. <laughs> but I didn't wear it that day because it made me feel bomb. I wore it that day because I was scared to be who I was. And my colleague saw me that day he was very confused. And he reminded me of it as I was raging about why my colleagues weren't throwing themselves out into the street around their queerness. I didn't begin out in that way. I acquiesced. I pleased the people around me. I demurred 
I didn't correct people when they said she, her. I didn't correct people's assumptions about my sexuality. I waited and I acquiesced. But then a time came. The time came when they said, we're coming after all the queers in the church. Leadership across the world gathered and voted and said, starting January 2nd, 2020, we're hunting everyone down and rooting them out. Clergy, like myself, who are out and queer. And I thought in that moment, if I can't come out now, if I can't be out now, what am I here for? But maybe, maybe this is why. Maybe knowing that I could get fired and waiting for the right moment, maybe being in that moment and saying, for such a time as this, I have been made a pastor of the United Methodist Church. And yeah, I may lose it all. I may be stripped of my credentials. I may be torn from this place that I love. But God will save the queer, liberated people. God will be here for LGBTQIA plus people who God created in God's own image. I believe in the salvation of my queer kin. And I have an opportunity to be a part of it or not. I can put myself on the line and be a part of God's story of bringing the fullness of salvation to all people. Or I can sit this one out and hide and hope they don't find me and throw me out. So I came out big and hard and loud, as is, again, my style. I am one person. You, each of you, is one person. And in this world where we confront structural evil, we often wonder what each one of us has to offer. But we are constantly being, being given invitation. And we don't have to have been bold yesterday in order to be bold today. There is a moment every day that you were brought for such a time as this. God's story is constantly being written in a way that invites you to newly examine the power you have, to take risks that you couldn't have imagined, to put everything on the line so that you can be a part of the incredible work that God is doing in the world and throughout creation. This is how the kingdom comes to pass. God is not a distant God. God is not a God just sort of magicking things into heaven. The kingdom comes to pass through us, through each of us saying yes to that invitation. And over time, our yeses and yeses and yeses build into heaven on earth, into God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it works out for Esther. Esther doesn't do it alone either, by the way. As we heard in the reading, Esther says, fast with me, pray with me. Everywhere you are, be in prayer for me. I will ask my maids to do the same. So even though she leverages her power as an individual, she doesn't do it alone. She calls on everyone she knows to be in fasting and in prayer. And she goes before the king. And the short version is that it works out for her she gets what she wants. The Jewish people are spared. Haman is executed. And then it gets bloody and ugly. The Jewish people, on the day that they were supposed to be slaughtered, slaughter other people. And 
And this is supposed to be this great reversal that says, look, victory for the Jewish people. And that's true. It is proof that the people who are crushed will no longer be someday. But it is also evidence that we can say yes and no at the same time. That we can do beautiful things and destructive things all at once. But this is how God works in the world. Through our messy, scared, brave, bold selves. Through girls who get where they are because they're pretty and pleasing. Through oppressed peoples who have denied themselves to assimilate. Through unexpected heroes who said no to God's invitation until they said yes. And it doesn't always work out well, and it doesn't always work out perfectly. But if we say yes, we are entering into something so much bigger, so much grander than ourselves. And if we say no, are we really here for the story, for the life that God has created? Where are you called to step out? What are you called to put on the line right now? What is the time that is unfolding in your life right now that you have been called to?